to our next and final guest. I'm not going to see a huge amount because I want to be able to talk more afterwards, and I know we're running slightly short on time. Please welcome Jake Arnott for this first ever reading from the House of Rumour. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm just going to settle in to this... Uh, slightly stall. precarious stool. Slightly precarious stool. Now, uh, thanks so much, Alex. It's really interesting, the, 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 the um, connections with the, with the House of Rumour about... Well, it's interesting. Um, Frank Zappa said the only difference between a cult and a religion is real estate. And um, it's certainly the case in my book. I look at, 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 at the new religions of the 20th century quite a lot and how they did expand into religions. In the case of Scientology, of course, for tax reasons, for more, more than anything else. And L. Ron Hubbard does appear in this book. Hooray! Um, <laughs> as a pulp fiction writer, as well as a, a great leader of our times, as well as Jim Jones, uh, who actually, I mean, People's Temple is quite interesting. If, you want, if people want to think about how you mm -hmm. can go from extreme idealism, gay-friendly church. Yeah, and multiracial. Multiracial, gay-friendly church, perfectly utopian, suddenly turns into something else, um, which in, in some ways is what Alex explores. It's not really about belief. It's... it's it's what happens to belief that is, is terrifying in a way and how it, how it gets used. But I'm just going uh, to, 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 it's very hard to sort of explain what this book is about, but I'll, I'll, I'll just say what I'm going to read from is, um, it's the second section called The Magician. Um, and yeah, there is quite a lot of mumbo jumbo, lovely kind of um, interesting superstitious stuff, which I love. Uh, you don't have to believe in it. Niels Bohr used to keep a, a horseshoe in his um, in his laboratory, and his fellow physicians would say, "But Niels, what is this superstition?" He says, "Well, I have heard you don't do not have to believe in it for it to work." <laughs> and I entirely believe in that. I think there is something that is really important about that sort of stuff. But this is from the magician, um, and we are going into the middle of the 20th century, where a lot of these sort of strange ideas did come out of. This is 1941 in London and a young intelligence officer who's concocting this particularly strange scheme to, um, or is part of this strange um, scheme to lure a top Nazi to defect, um, has gone to see uh, an expert in the, um, in the unseen. An old man with a childlike gait thought Fleming as the magician shuffled through the hallway to greet him. Two tufts of hair sprouted on either side of an otherwise bald head, like impish horns, and a mischievous smile lit up haggard features. The eyes were sharp and vigilant, though. The whites showed all around the irises, giving them an alert and forceful gaze. Shown through to the study, Fleming found himself drawn to a picture resting on an easel at the far end of the room. A brightly painted panel of about 12 by 10 inches depicted an androgynous figure in a green robe decorated with bees and serpents flanked by a white lion and a red eagle. Encircling this tableau was an inscription in red on a golden arc. Visitor in Toria Terra Refectango in Venice Occultum Lapidum. Fleming read the words out loud. The magician smiled. How's your cryptology? he asked. Well, my Latin's a bit shaky. Let me see. He studied the motto once more. Visit the interior of the earth, rectifying or by rectification, um, you find. No, you will find. You will find a cultum lapidum, the hidden stone. 
Is that the Philosopher's Stone? Yes, replied the magician with a delighted clap. Fleming noted that his hands were quite yellow and curiously small. An alchemical formula. It is indeed, but I'm afraid you haven't quite cracked it. I'm afraid code-breaking's not my department, Mr. Crowley. My dear boy, his host retorted, I can assure you this one is not beyond your most obvious talents. Go on, have another go. <laughs> For a second, Fleming bristled at being so obviously teased. Then he smiled. He looked across the room at this extraordinary man, whose playful eyes danced in a wizened skull. He had not known what to expect from the magician, after all the incredible stories that had been told about him, the strange details in his dossier. He had expected to find him disagreeable, yet he found that he liked the man almost at once. He was not quite sure why. Perhaps it was the perverse candor that he displayed in his speech, in his very appearance. Crowley was in his 60s, his lined and jaundish flesh bearing witness to the countless pleasures, sorry, the countless sufferings of pleasure. But there was a corporeal honesty about him. His own body had been his greatest luxury, Fleming thought, with an odd sense of admiration. The magician had not squandered his life by trying to conserve it. He had used up his time. Fleming turned back to the picture and swiftly considered the simplest cipher that came to mind. V, he began, counting off the first letter of each word. V-I-T-R-I-O-L. Vitriol. That's sulfuric acid, isn't it? Yes, indeed. The solution, if you like. The universal solvent. Vitriol here actually refers to the principal alchemical elements of sulfur, salt, and mercury. A uh, magical interpretation that only initiates of the ninth degree can comprehend. Anyway, he pointed at the picture, it's the 14th trump of the tarot. I'm redesigning the whole pack. It's the book of Thoth, you know. Thoth? The Egyptian god of language. Lady Frida Harris is doing the artwork for this new set, and I am writing the commentary. Her husband is liberal member for Parliament for Market Harborer. Rather a dull politician, I'm afraid, but known as the housemaid uh, due to his ability to empty the chamber whenever he makes a speech. His, his wife has quite a talent, though, wouldn't you say? Certainly. Well, this one's been causing her a lot of bother. It's commonly known as temperance. Temperance is a kettle of fish, she told me in a note. I decided to rename it. I'm calling it art. What do you think? I wouldn't know. I haven't had much luck with cards myself recently. Crow Crowley laughed. <laughs> My dear boy, the Major Arcana is not some game of chance. The 22 trump cards compose a complete system of hieroglyphics representing the total energies of the universe. Quite rejoined Fleming with an arch smile. Now I see that I'm boring you. That will never do. Come. He indicated two armchairs by a table in the middle of the study. Let's sit down. I've been waiting for naval intelligence to make contact. I take it you've seen my file. Fleming nodded as he walked over. The magician sighed and lowered himself slowly into his seat. A chessboard was set out on the table between them. Yes, Crowley went on. I've done the state some service. You know, there's been a long tradition of those with occult powers being employed in espionage. Dr. D, 
Queen Elizabeth's court magician was also one of her best spies, you know. Oh, yes, she called them her eyes, with two circles indicating this, and then a number. D was the seventh of her eyes, so his code sign was 007. <laughs> Is that so? I, yes, I suppose my, I'm secret agent 666. <laughs> Actually, your code name in the department is the magician. Quite, said Crowley, slightly out of breath. He began to wheeze and pulled out a benzedrine inhaler from his pocket, taking a sharp snort in each hot nostril. A tear lingered in the corner of each eye. <laughs> Sorry, it's my wretched asthma, he explained. <sighs> now look, dear boy. Since you've had a good look at my file, you know what I did in for your department in the last war cost me dearly. Disinformation and all that, I know. Disseminating absurd German propaganda to discredit the enemy. Worked a treat, but rather cast me in the, as the villain. Uh, don't think I can go through all that again. Don't worry on that account. We've other plans for you. Good. All oh, that scandal. My great notoriety. It's ruined me. It's not easy being the wickedest man in the world, you know. <laughs> I don't suppose it is. I'm an undischarged bankrupt. Like our own great realm, I'm now dependent on American support for my survival. Oh, yes, my own land lease scheme. The Agape Lodge in California is providing some funds. A very promising young rocket scientist, would you believe? Rather dashing to, it seems. You see, my order is already grooming my successor. I don't have much time. I know that. The mind's still sharp, but the body, well. He made a plaintive gesture to the picture on the easel. I want to finish this. <laughs> Sorry if I sound pompous about it, but it could really be my magnum opus. A pack of cards? Yes, a fitting epitaph, some would say, to my sinful life. He bared his discoloured teeth in a rueful grin. There was sadness in his expression, but little remorse. Holding Fleming's gaze with an unfocused stare, he started to address him in a direct and intimate manner, his voice soft and hypnotic. You know, of course, that there was an eighth deadly sin, don't you? Oh, yes, the worst of the lot. The early Christians called it acidy. The sorrow of the world, a deadly lethargy and torpor of the spirit that was known to engulf whole villages in the Middle Ages. The most frightful devil of all is this noonday demon of melancholy. Boredom, my dear boy, a terrible vice. And the only one I have been truly determined to resist. Fleming suddenly felt as if the magician was peering into his own soul, that he saw how disappointed he felt in life. All of his empty pleasures and futile plans of action had left him cold. He might be flippant and withdraw into a pose of detached superiority, but he was endlessly taunted by the noonday demon, a sinful weariness of the heart. It was this that forced him to seek refuge in a solitary world where he plotted out his secret stories that other life of obscure substance, the autobiography of his daydreams. As he began to outline Crowley's designated role in Operation Mistletoe, he found himself becoming far more expansive in his briefing than was usual. He had hitherto developed a method in handling of agents where he would care they would carefully be kept into the dark 
as to the overall nature of their assignment and fed information only when it was strictly required. But with the magician, he felt that he could tell him everything. All the details of this fantastical project that had been conjured out of unofficial and increasingly bewildering interdepartmental strategies of disinformation, counterintelligence and black propaganda. It struck him that this supremely arcane intellect alone could truly comprehend the complex absurdity of such a scheme. And no one would believe him if he ever told the tale. Crowley himself was a cipher, a hidden stone, a key to all the foolish mysteries and rumours in the world. As Fleming spoke, he watched Crowley closely, instinctively gathering information for his own internal memorandum. Another brief appraisal, a version of the man's character that he could use. Crowley no longer wanted to be cast as a villain in real life. But in fiction? Yes. He would make the perfect malefactor, an extravagant counterpoint to the empty hero of Fleming's private narrative. My dear boy, the magician announced when the briefing had finished, this is marvellous stuff. Preposterous! He broke into a laugh that soon turned into a gasping huff. He took another, another double hit of an inhaler and caught his breath. <laughs> it's, he paused, panted, it's completely implausible. That's the genius of it. Yes, agreed Fleming, knowing then he was right to tell Crowley all of it. But you might be able to make contact with certain elements within enemy territory or mm, order. It began as a German mystical society, didn't it? The Ordo Templi Orientis, yes. A banned organization in the Reich, I'm afraid. As you might know, the Nazis have been rather clumsily imposing their own monopoly on the dark arts. But I still have something of a network out there. <laughs> yes, my own secret service, if you like. And might you be able to get a man close to our subject? A man, yes. Crowley pondered. Or maybe a woman. A woman? Yes. Crowley looked up wistfully. Astrid. It's been a long time, but she might be just the person for this job. One of your many protégés? asked Fleming. Oh, no. Crowley replied with a smile. She initiated me. <laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, please say that you're doing the audiobook. Well, uh, if they let me. If they let me. So, such a good reading. Such a good reading. Um, so, I mean, I, I didn't introduce the book, and we didn't talk very much about the structure, so I'm going to give people an overview, because mm -hmm. um, um, as Crowley says, it's completely implausible, but it works. And in <laughs> fact, it's genius. Um, each, each chapter is, um, is part of the tarot. Um, each chapter represents a... Um, I want to say a character, but... It is a character. A character. I mean, it's what's called the major arcana of the yeah. tarot. There's the major and the ma minor arcana. The minor arcana are the, are the, are the suits. The, the, the major arcana are the trumps. So you go from, you go from the fool to the... Oh, I can't there's remember. the hierophant, uh, which yeah, is the priest, yeah, there's, there's, the magician. I, I, I took some... Because Crowley did redesign the pack, so he did change temperance into art. Um, strength into lust, which I think is a great great move but I kept things like I, I didn't want it to be the high priestess I wanted to be the the female pope because the female pope is such a great it, it immediately sort of gives an idea of yeah 
So yeah, it is sort of twenty-two stories, but they do they do connect. They do connect. Oh, absolutely, they do connect. And, and what, what's what's brilliant about how they connect is, is that it's not always obvious. It's not always neat. It's not always tidy. And, and it's one of those books where a couple of days after I finished reading it, I still was making connections and feeling quite clever. I have to say, <laughs> thinking, oh yes, oh I get that. So there are lots of your preoccupations in there. There's magic. Yep. In its broadest sense. Yeah. There's um there's the new romantics. Yeah. Um, there and there's a, there are a lot of Nazis. Well, there's not too many Nazis. Well, they're, they're, they're enough. When when is enough, enough too many? Um, um, and and there, and there's sci-fi. And on the face of it, it's what you, you know. You just think, how is this all going to work? And it does. So let's talk about some of the characters that hold it together. Mm. Let's talk about Larry. Zagorski. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, if there is a central character, it's Larry Zagorski, who's a fictional uh, science fiction writer amongst. Uh, he 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 appears in. Uh, there was there was quite a famous literary s- another salon. It was it was a it was known as the Manana Literary Society that met at Robert Heinlein's uh, house in Laurel Canyon, in Los Angeles in the late 30s and early 40s, and it included all sorts of people. Bizarrely, Ray Bradbury was banned because he was a bit of a. He was a bit of a hellraiser back then. Who really? Oh my God! <laughs> so various people turned up, including a very charismatic uh, rocket scientist called Jack Parsons, who uh, ended up um, being a bit of a, a, of a successor to Alistair Crowley and setting a setting up a, um, a this utopian commune in Pasadena. Um, so his his Larry sort of connects these things because he's a writer of speculative fiction. So he's he he is sort of able to speculate on his own past and realized that actually the reality is a bit stranger than any of the things that he wrote for Astounding magazine. Mm. Um, there's also, there is the, the Rudolf Hess flight to Scotland. No, is that, that's Operation, Mis- Operation Mistletoe? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I suspect Operation Mistletoe never actually existed. It's, it's often posited that, that Fleming and, Fleming who's, who was in Naval Intelligence uh, and Alistair Crowley and various other people, inc- including the original M, who was this wonderfully conflicted closet homosexual who ran counter counter espionage out of Dolphin Square in in, in the early forties? And he sort of stands in the book. He stands watching people cruising, going, "Isn't it disgusting?" Mm. <laughs> like that. Yeah, there's a fantastic. Actually, his 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 money penny character, Joan Miller, wrote this wonderful memoir about her her, her life with with this rather strange old queen. But uh, so this is British intelligence plot. There is a grain of truth of it. Fleming certainly knew Crowley and used Crowley, as indicated in the book, as a template for the first Bond villain. Le Chiffre is definitely based on Alistair Crowley. He admitted as much. And he Le did Chiffre, which means the cipher. The cipher, yeah. And he did issue a memorandum that once Hess was in ca- captivity, Crowley should be used to um, debrief Hess because of his occult knowledge. There's also... It all starts to go sort of strange after the war, bizarrely, because we go into this strange sort of post-war, Cold War world where all these strange cults and religions do start to establish themselves. Of course, including um, L. Ron Hubbard does turn up. He does have this strange relationship with the Jack Parsons character, which is a bit like, again, it's a bit like Dr. D, but it's the the Edward Kelly character who comes along, the charlatan that comes along and steals everything from the genuine magician, Mm. including the the woman and all the money, um, and sets up this strange science fiction religion, essentially. I mean, um, I don't know if there are anyone here from the the Church of Scientology, um, but... 
Never mind. It's fine. It's fine. No, I, I mean, actually, th- there are, but there, but again, there there are things that are genu- you know, that people have found of genuine use in in. I mean, this is the thing. No one really joins a cult. People join something in order to find some sort of meaning. Um, though I have to say, Elvon El is particularly, he is particularly. I mean, he doesn't turn up very much in the book, but he, he, he comes and there's enough of him. There's yeah. almost a, a whiff of sulfur when he appears because there is something. He does, he, he, is, he is one of the, he is a bad man. He's, he's, he's not a good man. Yeah, I mean, I think he's got his reasons. Yeah. But, uh, and I don't probably go into that enough. I think he was, I mean, bizarrely, he was a very successful pulp writer. He could write apparently 2,000 words an hour without, uh, and he, he started in, he did all the pulps. He did fantasy, he did explorer, he did cowboy. He then came to science fiction. And some of his stories are quite, you know, in terms of ideas, they're, they're not that bad. So when, when, when you were growing up, um, did you kind of enjoy those pulp fictions? Or Absolutely. is it something, yeah? Absolutely. I mean, in some ways, this book is, is a return to my adolescent self. I probably haven't read very much science fiction and fantasy since my teenage years. But boy, was that a gateway drug. That really did get me into reading. And, and imagining. And imagining. And also you get this sort of strange moment where you sort of read, you read, say, something like Kurt Vonnegut. I remember reading Cat's Cradle. I think, wow, this is fantastic. It's a great science fiction story. Wait a minute. Something else is happening. We're going into a different place now. And, oh, God, this is what those people call literature. You know, this is about sort of characters, and it has a sort of different... Um, a bit like Brighton Rock in, in that sense. I think I wrote, I read Cat's Cradle and Brighton Rock about the same time. I thought, mm. oh, wow, this is great. This is mer- oh no, there's something else is going on. Um, and I think sci- I, you know, science fiction or, or SF, speculative fiction, I think continues to be one of those genres. I think because it hasn't become respectable or completely respectable, it still has the power to throw up really interesting people. Well, it can, uh, it can be on the edge asking questions because, in a sense, it doesn't care quite so much about the answers. There's yeah. less for it to lose. But y- I- in the book, you talk about these um, John, John Barr points, <laughs> and I think yeah. they're really interesting to explain. So the, uh, the idea that um, in, in the book, when Rudolf Hess is about to land um, or take off from Nazi Germany and fly to Scotland on his mission for peace, so his, his thinking, we're told, is that if he can get peace with Britain, which is full of nice white non-Jewish people, um, we can stop killing them and we can go east and kill everybody east of there, all those kind of filthy Jews and, and other people. Um, and so he, he, he's making this decision at this point in history and, and everything's in the balance. And this, this balance, this moment of possibilities is, mm. is what's called a John Barr point. And I'd never heard of that. Well, so it, it's something I came across. It, it, Jack Williamson, who was a, an old golden, golden age science fiction writer, wrote the book called a Legion of, the, the Legion of Time. And it came out in... Uh, an astounding mag- magazine in 1938, and it's a, it, it's freighted with all these cliches of, of you know of, of sexual, of, of gender and and of race for that matter, and it's it's a pretty turgid read in lots of ways, but it has these fantastic, fascinating ideas because it's the first time bizarrely it's the first time writers are really directly engaging with con- the idea of quantum mechanics, the idea of multiple possibilities, and the idea and his idea that there's a character called John Barr, that as a child, if he, picks up, if he picks up a magnet, he'll become a scientist and he'll create this, this wonderful energy system that will lead towards a, toward a utopian future. If he picks up a stone he, for a slingshot, he'll, he won't and, and will go off to a dystopian future. And in some ways, that was America looking at, at the rest of the world at that time because they were neutral. At a time when the whole of the rest of the world, Asia, Africa, Europe, were all engaged in this very, very 
dangerous balance between, um, well, I mean, it was never going to be utopia, but it was possibly going to be dystopia. Mm. I mean, it's all, and it, it, bizarrely, it was dystopias that always came come come out of utopian ideas in, in a way. Um, but as with the quantum mechanics, this idea, I think what we get in the book is that, um, is that in the same way that waves and particles can exist at the same time, utopia and dystopia can exist at the same time and maybe in different places or, or in one person. Yeah, well, I think the other, the other great moment of 1941 was when Jorge Luis Borges um, published The Garden of Forking Paths, which is a very short story, but, and it's, I, you, know, you can read it again and again and again because it, it posits this idea of... You know that the, uh, there is this labyrinth. The, that there are every possible idea that could have happened does happen. It's, it exists somewhere. It doesn't exist in this universe, but there there is all these multiplicities. Um, and I think for for a writer, that's a really interesting idea because in some ways, all all fiction is sort of counterfeit, counterfactual mm. um, reality. So we all try, and in so in sense. Even the way we look at our own stories, you're always sort of thinking, well, what if this had happened? What if that had happened? What if I'd gone that way? What if I'd gone that the other way? And so, um, you know, that, that's, that's one of, the, one of the, the, the sort of thing that informs the characters in a way. Because there's, it's also, you know, in the heart of it, uh, it's, a, it's a big novel idea, but there, there's a sort of unrequited love story at the heart of it, the fact that, you know, there, there's this sort of possibility for love that never quite happens. But there are, there's more than one unrequited yeah, love. I mean, maybe, there's maybe. Hess, Hess's unrequited love for Hitler. I know, I know. If only, if only, <laughs> they, just, if only they just had a nice time together, things <laughs> could have been avoided. So t talking about the, the, the labyrinth, I mean, I wanted to ask you a practical question about how long this book took to do, because I can see writing, uh, reading it, the possibilities for where you could have taken mm, it. Yeah. Um, I mean, how, did you take it down any 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 kind of points of that labyrinth and hit a wall, come back, or yeah, did yeah. you? There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that never ended up into the final cut and was rewritten and was re. I mean, the interesting thing of having of deciding to have a set structure that there's going to be 22 stories that they would all have these titles. And they would all go in this particular order. Um, meant that I would, I would get to a point where I think I have to get rid of this and start it. You know, it, section by section, I would go back and think, no, that's not working. I mean, actually, it was often my agent or my editor telling me that as <laughs> well, or other people who read it, or you know that. that so there's, there's, yeah, there was huge amounts. So the structure came first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Around the yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think that I, I had a few ideas, and then the structure quickly came and I thought oh right that's the way I'm going to go with this um, and you know what I, what I read from The Magician came very early on I thought yeah this is going to be a, a sort of bon pastiche with Fleming as a central character and that kind of worked and it's a sort of it's not quite novella length it's a short mm. you know it's a short there's, there's, there's about ten, ten very short chapters in that and it's of a particular style well, that was into their own particular styles. Yeah. That's one of the really enjoyable things about reading it is just that you know e each character has a different way of speaking, and they're all, you know, they're they're all very different. They're all talking to each other or about each other, or, but they're all completely believable. And I mean, that must have been quite hard to go from you know Fleming's way of of, of being to say you know um, Larry's, for example. Yeah, well, it can be quite liberating because you think, oh well, this is this is how I, I don't have to. You know, in, in some ways, there's only so much of this I can sustain. Mm -hmm. um, 
and um, you know, going from go, going from uh, and even even having stories within stories, the stories that the characters write, you know, you can think well, they're going to have to be short. They're not, you know, we don't <laughs> want to get into too much because um, there is a sort of sense of recursion. You know, that there's a, 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 there's a danger of a of a hall of mirrors is that you you never find your way out of it. So I did want to make sure that although we can get lost in the novel, we can also find a way out. Mm. And there is a clear sort of path. And in some ways, the major arcana does allow for that. Somebody has, you know, many analysts have described it as a, as a fool's journey. You know, that we start with a fool and he, he makes his way into, out into the, into the world, essentially. The innocent fool. Well, it's sort not of the innocent well, it's inter interesting about innocence because I suppose in some ways that's one of the, s the themes of the book is about the loss of innocence and about how you know the, the, the a lot of the characters start off with a tremendous amount of idealism and by the end uh, what we left with. So yeah, I think it is. I think it does have that sort of sense that that, that there there is that 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 loss that uh, that we all experience. I think. I'll take some questions, Sylvia. So just the question for people who didn't hear it, and I kind of—it's it's also very related to Alex. It's a system of belief, the tarot, um, just like the Alpha course. I mean, but you know, people have been turning to it. It has become much more popular, and different versions of it yeah, as yeah. well. I've noticed. I think I think it's not necessarily. It doesn't have to be as heavy as a system of belief. It's a it's a set of of archetypes. It's 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 a it's a metaphorical system mm. as well. I mean, I I suspect that most people when they read their their horoscope. They don't think, oh, this is the answer, but they, it, it might just give them something to get through the day. Um, and I think that, that I think there's always a danger of having, um, I don't know, of, of, of becoming too serious of, about, about these things. I think we ne you need to have a sort of sense of humor in order to, for, them, for it to be, for it to work, really. I mean, I think in the in the play between between Crowley and, and Fleming, this idea because we, we, we've just seen Fleming in another scene in the casino losing at Baccarat. You know, this sort of idea that that in some ways they're the same thing. You talk about the credit crunch, of course. It's all a gag. There's always this 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 balance in the universe, whether it's completely random or there's some or it's completely predetermined, and it's both. You know, we'll never know which it is at any time. It depends. It's a bit like the, you know, the double slit experiment. It can either be a wave or it can be a particle. And so, in some ways, we all need a bit of luck, uh, and and something. You know, you want. Uh, there's a great prison saying that better, n better, better bad luck than no luck. You know, even 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 the sense of misfortune sometimes can give you a sense. Well, at least there's something out there that can make sense of this. Uh, it's the desire to tell stories. It's the desire to have our own sort of narrative, I think. And you don't have to believe in it to work. Like exactly, the, like the whole no, show, exactly. especially not, I think. Questions anymore? Yeah. Um, were you conscious of writing within the tradition that the literature on the occult, so for example, Milton Graham Greene and Clyde mm. Brock? Mm. Yeah, how, how did you kind of view yourself in that context well, uh, of English yeah. occult writing? Uh, it's, 
it's funny, there's a great bookshop in, in um, Museum Street called Atlantis Books, and they're very clear that they're not New Age. No, nothing new about it, darling. <laughs> As Geraldine said, nah, we're the Western mysteries. And, you know, th there is an esoteric tradition. And whether you believe in it or not, it doesn't matter. There it, it does have a relationship to, um, to, to literature. And I would say Marlowe and Shakespeare mm. are the two that I would say are being the most important connected to that. And particularly, you know, The Tempest and Dr. Faustus, where they're really looking at what, what, what it is. And in a sense, you know, you could strip both of those bare of any superstitious nonsense and say that actually the pursuit of dangerous knowledge is a dangerous, um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a dangerous vocation. So you have to be very careful of it. Um, of course, the waste, the wasteland, again, throws up the tarot deck. Um, it always, it, as I say, it's it, you don't have to, you don't have to believe in in, in it. And you certainly don't have to. I think there's a, there's always a danger with new ideas that, that people will come up, someone will do a weekend workshop in shamanism and set themselves up <laughs> as a master. You think, well, wait a minute. Actually, you look at s uh, other people. Crowley is not a bad example. Who've who've had a life a lifelong um, curiosity about certain things, and so are actually maybe more interesting to look at. I mean, famously, it's just I missed it because it's only twelve performances. But you know, dear old Damon has just done mm. Doctor D at the Coliseum. It's yeah. going to be fantastic. And there, you know, that's the heart of British culture. Who was you know this extraordinary conflicted person, a brilliant mathematician, brilliant scientist in a way, but also brought down terribly, brought down like Faustus by this desire for something that he shouldn't be meddling with. Likewise with Jack Parsons, brilliant scientist, completely ripped off by L. Ron Hubbard. Can I just quickly ask, do you think the 007 thing is, is right? Has yeah, I think yeah. So. yeah, I think so. I love that. I mean, I, I go along with that. I mean, other people say it's the, it was the bus to, from St. Margaret's Bay. You think, well, if that's true, <laughs> I don't <laughs> want to believe in it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take one more question and then we're done. Oh, nobody has one. I have one. Oh. I have one, which <laughs> is when, when was your last tarot reading? I don't think I... I think have I you? Because people I, are going to be asking ago, A long time ago. What I, happened? Do you remember? I can't remember. But you think that the weird thing is I've never really needed to have anyone to read my cards because I, I, I say this to people and they say, what? what? I go through phases in my life where I find playing cards in the street and pick them up. Do I do too. Yeah yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I do it the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it does happen. Oh, good. And, and, and Very I, weird. I, I, I did it happened so <laughs> much, I used to keep them and, 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 and look them up and see what they meant. And the weird thing, about five years ago, I was, I was researching the last book, maybe four years, but maybe five or four, four or five years ago, I was in, um, it was in Marissa in southern Sri Lanka, and I'd just been, I've gone to Sri Lanka to research, because the, the, the last part of my book, um, well, not quite the very last, but there was a bit in Colonial Salon, and so I was there to do some research. And I'd just come off the beach, and I found the Six of Spades, and I picked it up, oh, the Six of Spades, put it in my pocket. A year later, I was walking along Borough Road, uh, going to, and it was literally within the same week, a year later. I'd gone to see my sister, who just lives down the road from me, I was going along, and I picked up a card, it was the Seven of Spades. Now this doesn't mean anything. <laughs> this is just coincidence, and it, so it doesn't really matter. But I just thought I've kept those cards, and they don't. And I'll never know what it means. It, you don't have to know, actually. Mm. But you just think, will I get the, the eight? Of, the eight of spades. 
And yeah, yeah, yeah. So we all dealt a hand. We all dealt a hand, that's for sure. That seems a fantastic place to end with Jake on it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you very much. It is, I have to say, a fantastic book. I want to thank you also for Alex Preston, for all of you for coming, and for Auburn and Wells for hosting us. Thank you very much. Um, we will be back um, uh, with Auburn and Wells somewhere else. I'm not quite sure we're on the 27th of September. It depends what card Brighton. We'll be in Brighton on the 27th of September. Easy for me. Um, and we'll be um, back at Shoreditch House on the 12th of September. So I'll see you all then.